Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we take on the topic of our most recent issue of Strategica, what will Afghanistan look like after America's departure? And joining us now is the author of one of the pieces in this issue, retired Colonel Joseph Felter, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior research scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for the, the invitation. Let's start with this. Uh, you worked in Afghanistan under both General Petraeus and General McChrystal on counterinsurgency efforts. Having been there in that capacity, what do you think would surprise the everyday American, the, the one who's consumed this war entirely through media coverage? What would surprise them the most about the reality on the ground there? Well, I think many Americans, based on I think what they're hearing in the mainstream media, would be surprised at there's serious progress we've made in, in developing the capacity of the Afghan National Security Forces. Certainly a long way to go, certainly nowhere close to the standards of developed Western militaries. Uh, but we've come a long way since uh, since late 2001 in, in building the capacity of their security forces to, to take over. Uh, but that said, a lot of challenges, and some of which I outlined in the article, remain that I think uh, extend beyond the capacity of their security forces. Now, in your piece at Strategica, you call the drawdown of U.S. and, and NATO forces in Afghanistan precipitous. And, and we know the response that inevitably follows from critics of that view. You know, We're talking about the longest war in American history and one in which after the removal of the Taliban from power, the public didn't necessarily have a clear understanding of what the remaining strategic objectives were. So how do you, how do you respond to that? What would have been uh, the right way to wind this down or should we have been winding it down at all? Well, we haven't seen the, the end game yet, but it, at the end of the day, you know, I, I served there in multiple tours, had a lot of friends serve there. Some of them didn't return or didn't return in the, the same state that they went. So we don't want to stay there forever. So I think the challenge is, but we don't want to squander some of the, the hard-earned gains that we've made um, in the United States and the, and the coalition. So I, I think you know, drawing down smartly, you know, leaving the types of forces in place that, that, that we're going to need to keep from you know, pulling the rug out is, is I think, the term I, I used – um, so I think there's a lot of options, you know, as far as the, you know, the small force, the, the counterterrorist force, a lot of things are on the table. It remains to be seen how, how things are going to end up, you know, certainly from one extreme of everyone out by the end of the year to, you know, small special operations presence. Um, and maybe we'll get into this later in, in the interview, but I think that most importantly, it's not just the number of troops, it's, it's the aid and assistance itself. Um, and I think that that's going to be key to keeping the, the level of security that we're going to need to, to, to allow the nascent uh, you know, Afghan you know, democracy to continue to, uh, to develop. Well, let's, let's talk about that. What do we need there in terms of the American presence? Both, I mean, we don't have to be super specific about this, but both in terms of, of numbers and in terms of the types of, of personnel, what is the approach that maximizes the probability of a, a positive outcome, both for the United States and for Afghanistan? And it may, numbers may not be the best metric to look at it. I, I think, right. uh, you know, if you look at the, the you know, I, I talk about the Soviet precedent, which, you know, again, it's not apples to apples, but it is a, it is a relative, a relevant precedent, if you will. Um, when, when they left in, in 1989, they, they continued um, economic assistance and some other forms of, of security assistance. And they, you know, the Najibullah government, they propped it up for got close to three, three more years, even after the demise of the Soviet Union itself. And it wasn't until the aid stopped that, actually brought the downfall of, uh, of 
you know, the Najibullah government. Um, so as far as what, what we need to leave behind for the United States um, and, and NATO coalition forces, again, I think to continue the economic assist- assistance, I think, it, you know, I have a special forces background, so I'm a, a little biased, but I think I can objectively say that we get a huge return on the investment in special operations forces, uh, both in, you know, the the high value targeting types of missions that we, we will probably still need to continue to, to maintain a capacity um, but also um, one example is if you're familiar with the, the Afghan local police, which is a, an effort where we're standing up local security forces uh, under, under the supervision and mentorship of, of U.S. special forces and now transitioning to, to Afghan special forces. But I think this is a huge force multiplier. If we're able to keep a limited number of special operations forces there, we'll get, a, I think, a big return on that investment. Um, but as far as a large footprint of U.S. combat forces, I, I really don't think anyone is calling for that at this point. We, we're going to have to draw down. Um, but I think a, a smaller footprint, special operations forces, continued economic aid and assistance, I, I think that's going to give us the chance to to keep things from collapsing in the same way that things didn't collapse necessarily on the, on the, the Najibullah government when the Soviet troops left. Joe, any time that we're talking about this issue, almost any issue it seems these days in foreign policy, particularly in the media, the notion that always comes up is that you know, America is a, in some sense a, a war-weary nation, uh, one that has, has grown tired of, of these kinds of concerns and especially that's, that's probably more pronounced – uh, with Afghanistan than it is in other places, partially just because it's the whole, the whole affair has gone on for so long. We're l- looking about 13 years right now. So for people who have that kind of mindset and just sort of want to wash their hands of it, what would you say to them if somebody asked you, somebody of that disposition, why is Afghanistan important? You know, we know, we knocked out the the Taliban at least from you know political control years ago. Um, What's the significance? Why should they care? Why is Afghanistan relevant? Well, you know, we live in an age now where you know some of our biggest threats to our national security and to our vital interests don't necessarily come from the strong states. You know, I, I taught international relations at West Point, and you know, traditional international relations theory says big powers need to be concerned about other big powers. But, but the truth is, that in this in this day, some of the biggest threats to our national security come from the weak states. Other uh, states are going to harbor terrorists, you know, tra- transnational threats, um, proliferation threats. So as much as I'm tired and I think our country's tired of, of the war in Afghanistan, at the end of the day, we, we can't afford to let the, the same conditions that brought us 9-11 um, c- come back. And I'm not saying that that's, we're necessarily at risk there, but we can't just wash our hands of the threat because we're tired, so to speak. That said, I, I'm, not, I'm not making the argument that we should stay there in, in large numbers, but we have to remember – you know, how did you feel on September twelfth, two thousand one? Um, you know, it's it's that that threat is still out there, and if we're not careful, it can reassert itself. So we need to be careful that we don't walk away from a situation and really squander all the hard earned gains and all the blood and treasure that went into uh, into the last thirteen years. Um, so succinctly to your point, I, I think we can't ignore these threats. Uh, it doesn't mean we have to do more of the same. But the, the threats that, that did us great harm in the past are still out there, still still looking to reassert themselves, and we need to be proactive about addressing them. Um, and sometimes that, that requires a sustained commitment. Um, so I, I hope that there's a way to do that. I'm not saying to maintain 100-plus thousand troops in Afghanistan in, in perpetuity, but we can't just walk away and, and assume that the threat's not going to manifest itself again. Joe, when we leave Afghanistan, the majority of the security burden is going to fall on the Afghan National Security Forces, and, and we've all heard the litany of complaints about them, that they've got high desertion rates, that, that there's a lot of readiness issues, there's a lack of accountability, and this breeds a real 
pessimism about their ability to do the job once we're gone. Do you share that pessimism? Well, again, we have to be cautious of what benchmark we're using. I mean, certainly the Afghan National Security Forces are, are nowhere close to the standards of a developed Western uh, country's military, or certainly the United States. Um, but let's here's some good news, and I, I don't mean to sound crass, but the, the real challenge for the Afghan National Security Forces they need to be just marginally better than the enemies that are going to confront. And I, I tell you, Taliban are, are certainly a formidable enemy, but they're they've 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 reached the level where they can they can defeat the Taliban in, in, in head-to-head combat. So I think the the good news is that the, the Afghan National Security Forces only need to be marginally better than, than the threats that they're confronting, and, and they've in many cases met that standard. Um, but the disturbing news, and maybe we'll get to this later in the interview, is that's assuming that these Afghan National Security Forces fight. You know, coherently and, and, and as one force. And, you know, if you look at past history, sometimes that when the government – there's a lot of competing warlords, people competing for power. Um, so so it's, if the Afghan National Security Forces fight as one, I think we're, we have a lot more room for optimism. But if it, if it fractures on, on either ethnic lines or, or in, you know, rival warlords, I think that's where we're going to see our, our biggest challenges. And some of these – hard-earned gains we've made as far as developing their capacity will be squandered because they, they won't fight as, as one, so to speak. So how do you get there? What, what are the major issues involved in making sure that they are a cohesive force as opposed to splitting off in, in various different directions? And again, this is uh, – you're going to have to address governance and, and the political challenges. So you've got a, a much more capable Afghan national security forces. Again, lots of room to grow, but much more capable than they were 13 years ago. So now we've got to work on governance. So I think the real challenge is not 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 going to be developing the, the security forces more, but but in, ensuring that there's a there's a, a stable transition of, of power that you know that whoever is elected president next get, gets the support of the, the country, and then rival warlords or other competing factions don't splinter off. So again, it's a you know I'm a military, I have a military background, but I think the military has done a pretty good job of developing the capacity of the Afghan national security forces. Now it's going to be what remains to be seen is is, is Politically, can there be a, a, a tr- transition of power, and will this this new president have the loyalty and support of of, of a, the constituents in Afghanistan? Well, you know, on that question uh, about loyalty, you know, one of the criticisms that always comes up in regard to Afghanistan, it came up in Iraq too, was the idea that we were we we're buying peace, right? We we're spreading money around to win the loyalty of people who we maybe couldn't persuade on the merits, or or to put a finer point on it, maybe didn't care all that much about the merits. Now. People can think whatever they want about that, whether that's improper or whether it's just a concession to practicality. But it does change the balance on the ground, does it not, to have not just Western personnel but also Western money departing Afghanistan. How, how do you envision that affecting the situation there? Absolutely. And you, you, you hit a, a really important point. I, I think that we in a sense have purchased some of the cooperation of the, the – competing factions in Afghanistan. When there's a lot of money to, to, be, to be made by cooperating, you, you have a strong incentive to cooperate. When that money dries up, you know, these centrifugal forces, if you will, will start to man- reassert themselves. And I think we're going to have a hard time holding together, so to speak. So as, as the money dries up, a lot of the incentives for cooperation are, are also going to drive with it. And, and that's going to lead to some pretty uncertain outcomes. Um, which is another reason I think, uh, even if as the troops depart, that we maintain the economic assistance to try to keep you know, some of that glue, if you will, in place. Um, you, the term I use for for the role of the military here is, is not winning hearts and minds, but but leasing hearts and minds. And, and by that I mean they can create the security conditions 
for a period of time, but then you've got to bring in governance and economic development to, to, to fill. That's really going to be the determinant of, of, of an enduring stability and, and, and good governance for the country. Final question I'll put to you is the same question that serves as the title of your piece in Strategica. How good is good enough? That That is to say – and this is the same question that I asked Max Boot on the episode that we did with him on this topic. There seems to be an implicit understanding, especially amongst those who are critical of the fashion in which the Obama administration has gone about getting out of Afghanistan, that as we look towards the future in that country – we don't have the luxury of talking about what would be optimal. And so we're left instead asking what would be palatable. What can we live with in terms of an outcome that is at least tolerable for the United States in our interest? Best, best imaginable practical outcome. How would you answer that? I guess you know, at a minimum, let's, let's not allow the conditions that brought us 9-11 to return, you know, the, the type of weak governance that, that um, harbors can – Harbor terrors and that can, with international reach. So I think that's certainly the, the baseline minimum we, we can accept. I think ideally we want a, a, a democratic government friendly to the United States. Um, and beyond that, I think we, we need to accept that you know, it's going to take time for, for, for Afghanistan to develop the institutions necessary to look anything close to what you know, we, we may hope it would look like. So I think good enough is, is, is a country that, that doesn't harbor threats to our national and vital interests. Um, ideally, a democracy friendly to the United States and someday a, a, a democracy from the United States with, with developed institutions and, and increased standard of living and, and you know, a, 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 a good member of the international community. All right. My guest has been retired Colonel Joseph Felter, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior research scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford. You can read his piece and those of other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for the chance to be here. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening. <laughs>